Good morning, a very warm welcome to you, whether you're joining us uh, this morning in person or uh, via our live stream. Uh, it's good to be together in worship, and we're grateful that the, the rains are holding this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to begin a, a brief three-part uh, series looking at the whole issue of suffering and really the specific question of why God allows suffering. Because suffering is uh, the universal human experience. Virtually everyone in the hearing of my voice will at some time or another taste some degree of bitter, uh, painful suffering. And you can mark it down ahead of time that when it comes, it will almost certainly feel like it's undeserved and even maybe feels meaningless. And you will cry out, why? And the cause may be as varied as the faces here gathered this morning. A crushing, devastating diagnosis. A terrible injustice that occurs. A tragic, unexpected death. A marriage or a family torn apart. Abandonment. Incarcerated children. Mental health issues. Drug addiction. The list is virtually endless, but the question ever remains the same. Why? Why would God allow suffering like this to happen? In fact, the, the British uh, actor Stephen Fry isn't shy about explaining why he doesn't believe in God. He says that all the suffering in the world makes faith impossible. And once when asked by a TV, in, TV interviewer what he would say if he were wrong and he found himself standing before God, he didn't hesitate. He said, I'll say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And when the astonished interviewer asked him how he hoped to get into heaven uh, with such words, he insisted, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish. It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, and more worth living. And Stephen Fry is, is by no means alone in his assessment. I've always been struck by the quote uh, from Vince Neil, the lead singer of the heavy metal band Motley Crue. He once said, I lost my faith in God when I lost my daughter to cancer, the beast. I begged, I cried. I offered my life for hers, and day by day, I watched that beautiful little angel slip off. So excuse me for not taking my seat next to you on Sunday in church. I feel too cheated to worship. And I really appreciate the honesty of his pain. And any Christian who's ever tried to share their faith with others quickly finds that that this, far more than any other objection, is the one thrown back in our face. And to be honest, I get it. I feel the weight of it. 
Nor is it anything new. People have been grappling with this question since the earliest of times. I mean, the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus posited it in the simplest terms well over 2,000 years ago when he said, either God wishes to take away evil, but he's unable, or God is able to take away evil, but he's unwilling, or God is neither willing nor able to take away evil, or God is both willing and able to take away evil. Well then, if he's willing and, able, and unable, then he is feeble, which is not in accordance with the character of God. If he's able and unwilling, then he is malevolent, which is equally at variance with God. If he's neither willing nor able, then he is both malevolent and feeble. If he's both willing and able, which alone is suitable to God, then where does evil come from and why doesn't he get rid of it in the world? And 23 centuries have passed as Epicurus summed up our great dilemma in those few short sentences. But each succeeding generation has had to continue to grapple with it. For those of us who do believe in God, the existence of suffering poses a major challenge to our faith. Indeed, how can a God who is both loving and powerful allow such things in his world and on his watch? And yet at the same time, our reaction to the existence of suffering makes it very hard to be an atheist too. I mean, because after all, if there's no God, if we're just simply, if we've just simply evolved by chance and, 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 and out of a fierce survival of the fittest, then why do we even care about suffering in the world? Why do we, we sense so acutely what's right and what's wrong and we nod approvingly at the words of Stephen Fry? Why do we care so much about justice and, and kindness and compassion and all the other virtues that the Bible says God possesses and pla has placed in the human heart to, to help us find him? So then suffering, the suffering that we witness in the world makes both faith in God and lack of faith in God seem a bit too challenging. And that's why, as the Scottish philosopher David Hume observed, the search for an answer goes on. Epicurus' old questions are yet unanswered, he said. Is he willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why? call him God. Well, a whole book of the Bible has been devoted to answering the question. Halfway through the Old Testament, sandwiched between the history books and the prophets, are five books that together form what we call the wisdom literature of the Bible, the first and the oldest of which is devoted to this first and oldest of questions of why God allows such pain and suffering in the world. And at 42 chapters long, the book of Job isn't short. But that's because God knows that our biggest question requires more than a cursory answer. And the book of Job is really honest. I mean, some of the things that we're about to hear Job and his friends say about God are meant to make our toes curl. They're, they're every bit as shocking as what Stephen Fry said to that astonished TV interviewer. And that's because God is inviting us to be real with him about our questions as we read it so that he can give us real answers. 
And the book of Job is also poetic. It, it speaks of a, a real historical individual and real events and, and, and real conversations took that took place. But it largely com communicates it through poetry. It begins with two chapters of prose. But from then on, other than a few verses at the end uh, or at the start of chapter 32 and at the end of four, chapter 42, the book of Job takes the form of a long, very long poem. And that's because poetry moves our hearts in a way that prose can't. It doesn't just deal with the facts, but it's how those facts make us feel. It, it, it deals not just with our heads, but with our hearts. And so God is inviting us to engage with him throughout the book of Job on, on more than just an intellectual level. He wants us to be honest about our emotions and about the anger uh, even that we sometimes feel towards him because of the suffering in the world. And so let's find out what God has to say in reply to Epicurus, to David Hume, to Stephen Fry, to you, and to me. Uh, Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and the man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge of, uh, around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 
while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they, were, they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, "Where From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From where, going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is the word of God. Job really is the perfect man to help us grasp why God allows so much suffering in the world. And the opening five verses of chapter one underline that several times. Job is the perfect man because his life is like a blank slate to us. We're told that he is married, but we're never told his wife's name. Uh, we're told he has 10 children, but they remain unnamed too. We're never uh, told the name of his parents or his wider ancestry. I mean, you don't read much of the Old Testament with its love of, of, of genealogies to spot that this is quite unusual. It almost seems as though the writer of the book deliberately withholds these details in order to hold Job up as a clean mirror in which we can see our own reflection. In other words, he is every man and every woman. And Job is also the perfect man because he lived in obscurity and in the dark recesses of history. The writer doesn't formally date Job's life for us, but he peppers uh, the, the book with clues that, that Job lived in the same period of history as the Hebrew patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, like the patriarchs, his wealth is measured by the number of sheep, camels, don donkeys found in his herds. Like the patriarchs, he lives to a, a far greater age than, than was possible for later generations. Like the patriarchs, he acts as a priest on behalf of his own family. 
But the fact that it never occurs to him in his anguished search for God to set out for the land of Israel indicates that he lived in a time where there weren't any Hebrew scriptures or there wasn't a, a tabernacle of, of Moses to go to in his hour of need. In other words, Job is very isolated spiritually. And in that, he's the perfect man to reflect our own sense of utter, utter loneliness when the sparks of suffering start to fly. Job is also the perfect man because he isn't the author of his own story. The book of Job is history, not autobiography. It's an accurate account of what Job said and an objective view of, of why he said it, but it's no sob story written and exaggerated by the sufferer. Rather, God inspired an unnamed poet to, to take the oral history of Job and turn it into a formal written record for the benefit of every generation that would follow. Job is also the perfect man because he isn't a Hebrew. Uh, the writer of Job is less interested in locating Job's homeland for us than he is than, that, than emphasizing that, he, that it wasn't the land of Israel. Job wasn't a Hebrew. He was a Gentile. He was an outsider to the family of Abraham. He lived in a pagan land, and he, therefore he might have been forgiven for worshiping the, the pagan idols of his friends all around him, except for the fact that he didn't. And that's the point the writer wants to make. Job wasn't just the perfect man in his mirroring of our own sufferings. He was the perfect man, end of story. And so the, the writer in the opening verses of chapter 1 goes on to tell us a number of things about this man. He was blameless. He was upright. He feared God. He shunned evil, turning away from anything that he knew would dis be displeasing to the Lord. And he got up early in the morning to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. And the writer ends the first five verses by emphasizing that this was Job's usual custom. In other words, Job wasn't some up-and-down fickle believer, sometimes devoted to God and sometimes backsliding into sin. No, he was a day-in, day-out faithful worshiper of God. And that's why Job is the perfect man to help us understand why God allows suffering. Because the truth of the matter is, we don't take too much issue with the Lord inflicting suffering on those who practice evil. I mean, when bad things happen to bad people at the end of, of books and movies, we rather enjoy that as a fitting resolution to the story. But what we can't abide is when good things happen to bad people and when bad things happen to good people. We dislike it in books and movies, and we certainly can't bear to see it in the real world. And so the, fee, the writer feeds this expectation of good things, that good things ought to, to, to happen to good people by assuring us that Job is married, he has lots of children, he has been blessed uh, materially, and he is the most honored among all the people of the East. But then comes the sucker punch. It is to this man, this perfect man, this paragon of virtue, that tragedy and suffering suddenly comes. Now, if the opening verses of the chapter set the scene and introduce us to, to Job, the next several verses then provide us with a peek behind the scenes, if you like, into the heavenly council room of God, where there takes place this extraordinary exchange between God and Satan. And from these verses, we can't walk away from the fact that Satan, our enemy, our adversary, can be directly at work in the suffering that we face. 
I mean, the, the Bible really does make it clear that he's called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's also seen in 1 Peter 5.8 as the, that, uh, that roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And Paul, when he's advising and encouraging Timothy and, and to Timothy too, he says, Timothy, you need to, to, to teach, instruct, you need to admonish. But who does he call Timothy to teach, instruct, and admonish? Those who've been taken captive to do Satan's will. So there are numerous passages throughout the Bible that talk about the works of the enemy and how he can directly oppose the work of God. And here we discover that Satan is directly involved. In many ways, he is the architect of Job's suffering. But having said that, while we're aware of the problem of evil in our world and Satan's influence, what we should do, we would do well to do is not overemphasize the work of Satan. Because ultimately, what this text, the text makes very, very clear is that God is in control. That God is in complete and utter control. That Satan can do nothing without the permission of God. And, and, and so we don't want to dismiss Satan as if to say he doesn't exist and that all the problems of the world are simply down to the flesh and just down to the, the corruptness of this world. No, there is an enemy. There is an adversary who is out to get us. And it's important that we're aware of that, but all the while remembering that God is utterly sovereign, that he is in complete control. I mean, Jesus, when he is speaking to Simon before his arrest and before he's arrested and crucified, he says in Luke uh, chapter 22, he says, Simon, 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 Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. It's quite the imagery, isn't it? Sift you like wheat. But what does Jesus say? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, in other words, when you have repented, I want you to go and strengthen the brothers. It's a beautifully encouraging passage. But we know as believers, those who have put our faith in Jesus, that we will have tests and we will have trials and suffering will come to us. It will come. And when it does, it's going to be a challenge. And there might be times when you feel like walking away, like it's just all too much, you can't deal with it. And what Jesus wants to do when he's specifically speaking to Simon, he just wants to encourage us to hold on and keep the faith. Not, don't give up. And there's a lot that we can draw from that encouragement from Christ. So while we need to be aware and eyes open to the realities and working uh, workings of our enemy, we mustn't ever lose sight of the fact that ultimately God is in control here. Even the, the verses here, we, we see that it is God who sanctions the conversation with Satan. It, it is even God who brings up Job in the first place. And not only does he do that, but he strictly limits the way that Satan can affect and touch his life. Satan's like a dog on a leash. And so the scene is set. Job is a blameless man. He's an upright man. He doesn't encounter suffering because of anything that he has done. He hasn't committed any sin that has brought about his suffering. No, we get to see what's going on behind the scenes. We're privy to, to, to what Job wasn't. It, it, it's because Satan's very cynical. He says, do you know what? Do you know what, God? If you take his wealth away from him, take his family away from him, take his health away from him, take everything away from him, 
He won't worship you. He'll curse you. And so God grants Satan permission to, to test Job and to reveal to God's heavenly counsel if the worship he offers uh, to the Lord is real or not. And so Job gets up early one morning with no suspicion that God had given Satan per permission to test him, to test what lay at the heart of his own worship. In fact, one of the real challenges we have with suffering, don't we, is that we can often come, it can often come about in ways that are just unknown to us, totally, completely outside of our control. And this is exactly the story that we come across in the book of Job. And he wasn't privy to any of the insight that we are given into the, into the discussions that took place in God's heavenly counsel. It must have just felt like, to him, just like another day. That day when Satan began to strip away the protective packaging of God's blessing over his life to reveal the true nature of the worshiper inside. And so a messenger arrives to inform Job that he's lost much of his property. The Sabaeans were a nomadic tribe from the land of Sheba in modern-day Yemen and Oman. And, and, and Job's servants uh, report that the Sabaean raiders have, have, have stolen all of the oxen and donkey that were, were told about in verse 1. Then they've also killed uh, many of Job's servants while battling to do so. And surely this must have come as a devastating blow to a godly man who might well have expected the Lord to protect him from such disaster in a well-ordered world. But even with the removal of this first layer of God's blessing, Job doesn't shout expletives. He doesn't point an angry finger or shake an angry fist towards heaven. As far as we can tell, he says nothing at all. And two more messengers then arrive to strip away two more layers of God's blessing. Job's camels have been stolen by a second band of nomadic raiders. This time, they're Chaldeans from Babylonia. And again, his servants have been killed in the raid. And also he discovers that his sheep and the remainder of his servants have been struck and killed by lightning. Now for Job, losses to raiders can be blamed on wicked people, but, not natural, but natural disasters cannot. And the writer highlights this by referring to the lightning as the fire of God in verse 16. See, Job might have coped with the thought that his neighbors were against him, but the thought that God might also be against him comes as a far, far heavier blow. And Satan strips these layers so rapidly that one, one messenger has barely finished talking before the next one arrives with more bad news. But Job doesn't use what little breath he draws between disasters to curse God. He chooses to keep it on trusting. But then the removal of a fourth layer of God's blessings tears a, an even bigger hole in, in Job's heart. A, a messenger arrives while the first three are still catching their breath, bringing news that the, a windstorm has struck the house where Job's uh, children were holding a party and his seven sons and three daughters have all been killed. His oxen, his donkey, camels and sheep, they can all be replaced, but obviously his children can't. And so Job is now beside himself with grief. He shaves his head and he tears his clothes, removing yet another layer to, so that the true nature of his worship can be revealed for all to see. How will Job respond to such an avalanche of disasters? Will he still trust God? Well, we discover along with Satan, 
that he was wrong to accuse Job of only worshiping God for what he could get out of him. Job hasn't fallen for a prosperity gospel. And the writer's summary of his, his song of response is so remarkable. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's a song that can only come as the glad expression of a heart that chooses to trust God in the midst of howling pain. This is the kind of worship that costs a person everything. And so Satan's attack on Job have apparently served to vindicate God's wisdom. The Lord points out to Satan in verse 3 of chapter 2 that he still maintains his integrity, although you have incited me against him to ruin him without reason. It turns out that Job isn't using the Lord. He genuinely appears to love him and worship him. And so Satan is fuming now. He's quick to sin, but he's a slow learner, and he deceives himself into believing that he can win a second bout against the Lord if only he can secure permission to strike even closer to home. And Satan demands this time that that Job's own body must become the battleground. Skin for skin, Satan demands. A man will give all that he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. So Satan goes off with permission once again to follow up the four bitter blows of chapter 1 with a fifth and final blow. He inflicts Job with horrible sores on his skin from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Sores that itch so fiercely that, that his only relief is to scrape his raw flesh with a piece of broken pottery. And now bereft of his possessions and bereaved of his children, Job now sinks even lower to cut a hideous and repulsive figure. We discover later on in the, the book that, that his sickness and physical affliction was so severe that his friends could no longer recognize him, that it was accompanied by terrible fever, by nightmares, by weight loss, by reeking breath, and by unrelenting pain. And Job collapses in the dust, a broken man. And Job's wife has survived her husband's ordeals, but she can think of no kind words to comfort him. In fact, in her we see someone who voices our own thoughts whenever we conclude that a God who allows people to suffer is not a God worth worshiping at all. Are you still maintaining your integrity, she says. She asks her husband. Curse God and and die. Look, you might as well just curse God and die. You've lost so much. What is the point of trying to continue? But Job replies to his wife, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? As, As his sufferings begin to strip away even his flesh, it reveals the heart of a true worshiper underneath the protective packaging of God's blessing. He isn't merely using God to become healthy and wealthy. He loves God for his own sake, and he chooses to carry on worshiping even when he seems to get nothing back but trouble in return. So what are we to make of this story so far? 
Now we're going to return to Job's story again uh, the next two weeks. And we'll come back to some of these themes. But as we, we draw uh, this morning to a close, I'd like to, to leave us with a couple of thoughts. And again, Lord willing, we'll have an opportunity to come back to them uh, in the coming weeks. First of all, when you read much of Job, Job doesn't come across as a man of peace. Rather, he's a man of inner turmoil and agony. He's in a lot of pain. And a lot of this book is trying to reconcile what's going on in the world and what he's experienced with what he knows about God and what he knows about himself and fighting for peace in a sense. Job is a man who has to fight for peace. And I think that's actually quite a helpful lesson for us. That peace doesn't come by, you know, trying simply to ignore pain and suffering or trying to numb ourselves or anesthetize ourselves against pain and suffering. Rather, peace comes by facing the pain head on, but doing so in light of who we know God to be. And that actually is a battle. You know, you have to strive for rest. We have to fight for peace. That's just part of the Christian battle. So I think there's, a, there's just a lesson in that for us. But I also think that part of Job's battle is Job is trying to find answers to his questions. Because as I said earlier, he's living about 1900 BC. So the book of Job is probably the earliest book written in the Bible. There are events in Genesis that take place before the, the book of Job, like the Garden of Eden, obviously. But, but Job is happening around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what that means is that base, for, for, for Job is that basically he has no scriptures to turn to. He knows God, but he's, he's grappling to find answers to more questions about God. And actually, quite a lot of, that, of, of the book is devoted to things that Job discovers about Jesus. He prophesies about Jesus. He asks questions that are only answered in Jesus again and again and again. So we mustn't look at, look at Job and think, oh, this is Job's struggle. I'm going to struggle like Job. Listen, no, we must not struggle like Job. I mean, he's struggling because he doesn't know the answers. But we know Jesus Christ. We've been given the answers. We may struggle to believe the answers, but Job is struggling even to find the answers. So Job struggles in the dark. We struggle at least in the light. We live in the glorious new place that Job saw only dimly. But he barely scratched the surface of what we now know in Jesus Christ. And the final thing I'll say this morning is that the entire book of Job is what we call a theodicy. And that is, it is an attempt to prove that God is just in spite of suffering. And there were many, many theodicies in the ancient world as the ancient world wrestled with the problems of, of suffering. Because obviously the, 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 the theme of suffering is not a new one. The problem of pain is not a new one. But the book of Job is actually quite different. It's a different kind of theodicy. And for a start, the logic of the pagan theologies is essentially this. The gods don't care very much about human beings anyway. All they really do is take care of themselves. We're all sinful. We deserve it. But if we just become slightly better, the gods will bless us. 
It's all your fault, basically. The prosperity and the prosperity doctrine of if you'll just pull your act together, you wouldn't be suffering anyway. Well, Job is fundamentally different from that. Job, we're told right from the start, is a righteous, godly man, and yet he suffers. And so it actually, although it's in the genre of of these other works of theodicy, it just gives a totally, totally different answer. It's not about, you know, the slot machine of if you do good, God owes you one, you know, karma. Or if you do bad, well, you had it coming anyway. No, it's about relationship. It's about God's plan for the world. It's about trusting in the character of God, the God God who knows what's best, and trusting that God can use even the worst things for good, which, of course, he does with Job. And Job is a great example of how God uses suffering for our good. And the problem of pain and suffering seems to be to be honest, a much bigger stumbling block to faith for Westerners than it does for other parts of the world, uh, as the earlier Stephen Fry uh, quote reveals. You know, people in the West really hate, you know, their main reason for rejecting God is, why would God allow suffering? But listen, if you go to many places today, like in Africa or India, for instance, if you meet Christians in the slums of Mumbai, for instance, where, where they're not asking, why did God allow this suffering? No, they're grinning from ear to ear about how God has been so good to them. And we simply cannot compute sometimes how different these people living in abject poverty respond to God in comparison to, to the people that we pass you know, the, the day-to-day with in, in 95405, one of the richest zip codes uh, by worldly standards. Why is that? Well, I think it's because there's a, we have an embedded sense of entitlement. I think there's a sense, this idea that, that God owes us a nice life. I, I think as life in the West has become more and more and more comfortable, we've, we've, we've got used to that being an inalienable right for humanity. And I actually think that we as the church need a big corrective here. Because the fact is, suffering is a big theme in the Bible. Rejoicing in suffering. And when... I think about how we so often approach discipleship with one another. You know, how do, how do you grow as a Christian? Well, much of it is about stuff like, well, read the Bible, connect with others, pray, worship, all good things. But nowhere is there rejoice in suffering. And we've got to stop and ask ourselves why. We've got to stop and ask ourselves whether, whether we're making mature disciples of, of people. The way you grow a, a Christian disciple is through suffering and sacrifice. Suffering is, is difficulty you go through, which you didn't have any choice about. Sacrifice is, is, is difficulty you go through that you didn't have to go through, but you were willing to go through because of your love for Jesus. And we as a church need to discover, rediscover a theology of suffering and sacrifice, which I think is largely missing in the Western church. And so. I think the book of Job is an important corrective just that screams to us that we need to get back to our understanding of God or, or we will never become truly mature Christians.
There's so much more we're going to discover in the coming weeks, and I trust that the Lord will will reveal much to us. But let's pray uh, now as we come to a close. Father, your word, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, reminds us that we see through a glass darkly. We don't see uh, the full picture. And, And Job, the book of Job, helps us to understand how much we don't understand. And so thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of Job's pain and Job's suffering, you were, you were with him and you were in control. Lord, thank you that even though the enemy seeks to devour, Lord, you, you stand in solidarity with us. You pray for us. You intercede for us. And so, Lord, we do pray that you'd give us strength in the midst of all that we face. We pray that you'd give us strength to stand firm. We pray that you that we would know ultimately that we are free from the enemy's persecution and accusation because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Yes, we will encounter and have to navigate through suffering, but thank you that we don't do it alone. We do it with the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is our refuge, he who is our present help in times of trouble. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.